Hi, this is Maria Walsh and welcome to the Parachute Candidate podcast. Joining me for today's conversation is Kevin Highland. Kevin served as a police officer for 30 years and he retired from the force in 2014 to take up a position as the UK's first independent anti-slavery commissioner. In 2015, he was appointed officer of the Order of the British Empire, OBE in short, for services to combating human trafficking. He authored the Sustainable Development Goal 8.7, which focuses on eradicating forced labour and ending modern slavery and human trafficking. For those listening who perhaps have never heard of human trafficking, let me start by shedding light on what it is. Human trafficking involves the use of force, fraud or coercive control to obtain some type of labour or commercial sex act from a person. Sadly, every year, Millions of men, women and children are trafficked worldwide. It can happen in any community and victims can be of any age, race, gender or nationality. Traffickers use various methods to lure victims into trafficking situations. Some might be violence, manipulation, false promises of well-paying jobs, romantic relationships. Sadly, the list is endless. Language barriers, fear of their traffickers or fear of law enforcement frequently keep victims from seeking help, making human trafficking, sadly, a profitable and hidden crime. The conversation today stems from my time in 2014 as the International Rosa Tree, where I travelled to Calcutta in India. I met so many women and young girls who had been involved in the street trade, many forced into the lucrative industry that is trafficking. I learned in 2014 from conversations with key leaders like J.P. O'Sullivan from Neckpats and the medical missionaries of Mary's, commonly known as the MMMs, who coordinated a project called The Gift Box, which highlighted the growing impact of human trafficking in our country. It was from there I was introduced to Kevin and learned of his work on behalf of the UK and Irish government. And in 2019, not long after I was elected, I met him in person. Here is our conversation. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us. Well, I should say Kevin Highland, officer of the Order of the British Empire. That OB is a very significant term um, uh, behind your name and someone with such a wealth of experience, Kevin, in the area of combat and human trafficking. And I would love to hear for our listeners and myself to understand the journey for, for how you got to sit in front of me today on a screen to where it began, because what, three, maybe four decades now, not trying to age you, Kevin, but a number of decades working to combat human trafficking. Thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. But it was, um, my my story of dealing with human trafficking is really, uh, as a former police officer and a police officer in uh, across the UK, London, Birmingham, and Devon and Cornwall for uh, three decades. Uh, During that time, I worked in many specialist departments. I was a detective for most of my career and, um, you know, ended up running units and uh, was involved in homicide, involved in rape, commands, uh, drugs, firearms. And during that time, you're dealing with a lot of vulnerability um, and you see the vulnerability is often um, missed by, you know, law enforcement, by the police and how it's dealt with. And... That is actually often made worse by the legislation or, you know, governments uh, don't always see it for what it is. 
Um, and we, we try to deal with it in a, in a very um, one-track way. That's what I saw when I was, uh, you know, policing. Now, when you're dealing with things like gun crime and, and, and robbery and murders, uh, there's a very kind of slick process and there's something that really fits within the policing model. But when you're dealing with things like human trafficking, where you're dealing with vulnerability of a different kind, you're dealing with people who, you know, in the context of Irish, could be Irish citizens, could be British, could be English-speaking, but many of them will be foreign nationals who really don't understand the systems in Ireland and maybe are thinking about what they're used to from where they come. So when I was asked to look at human trafficking in the Metropolitan Police at Scotland Yard and then set up new units, I took all the skills that I had for dealing with serious organised crime, and a lot of that would have been you know, very technical, using covert policing, using uh, operational intelligence, you know, using very sensitive information. And I coupled that with the vulnerability side of policing. And the two never mix. If you're in that side of dealing with vulnerability, you're seen as kind of dealing with all the, uh, you know, the, the, the victims and the vulnerability. And if you're in that cut and thrust of the organised crime, you're dealing with the hard heads and things like that. But bringing the two together, and I set up a unit within the unit of the organised crime of specialist officers who were dealing with victims. And bringing the two departments working together, the relationship forming. But then what I saw was really important was working with the third sector, working with other organisations. And that included, you know, religious sisters, it included NGOs, it included the health service. And when we came up to the 2012 Olympics, there was real worry about, you know, women in prostitution in East London and around the Olympic area and what was going to happen to them. And, you know, was the Metropolitan Police going to just clamp down on them? So I did a project where we, uh, we said we were not going to, or I said we were not going to be arresting women for working on the streets, which, you know, loitering for prostitution is an offence. I didn't want to see that happen. And we set up pathways for women to be supported. And we did operations on the organised crime groups, particularly with some of our colleagues in, in Europe. Um, and we really, you know, through the Olympics, it's the first time where we could show that during a major sporting event or major event that was happening in a, in a capital city, actually trafficking went down. There was no, because the model that we were using just disrupted their whole plan and tactic. Just to cut across you there, just so I can understand it a little bit better. So obviously large, large organizations, large gatherings, like a sporting, like a sporting event of such size, typically you would see an increase. Now, understanding also, you know, you, you can't share all uh, the insider information uh, from a, from a, from a police side, but like, what were those type of pathways for, for predominantly women, I would imagine, not, not to exclude men too, because I know they're, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit more in terms of the myths and truths of human trafficking and all its faces. But, you know, what, what would that be outside of not getting arrested? How did you spread the word? Was it just through word on the street or had officers go out, social workers go out, or, or could you paint that picture? Yeah, so it was partnership teams. It was police officers and uh, NGOs and members of the health service would go out. And, and you know, there was a, you'd find a situation where ordinarily a woman might be arrested, um, which I think is, a, you know, um, a bad way of dealing with it. Uh, and thankfully in Ireland that has changed, actually, the legislation. But then what would happen is they would be taken to a, a centre where they would be given the pathways. Pathway to health. 
This wasn't about lecturing them about their, you know, what they were doing and stigmatizing them. It was giving them options. And that may be health, it may be legal advice, it may have been some financial help. You know, there were even things um, which this centre offered, and this centre still runs to this day, um, would offer them, you know, how to um, make applications for, you know, social support, um, how to apply for a job, how to learn English if that they didn't have English. So there was all these pathways that actually helped someone to integrate into society. So, you know, I saw a change there. But at the same time, for me as the, as the police and leading these teams, we were getting this rich picture of information that we weren't getting before. Some of it direct from the, the, the people who were trafficked. Some of it from because we were gathering the intelligence around, you know, the normal ways that we'd be doing it. And then some of the gangs that we were arresting, you know, there was one gang that was a Russian gang that, you know, was such a complex crime. You know, they had safety deposit boxes over London. Um, they had, you know, high-value um, high properties. Uh, there was another gang we looked at, and they had 49 properties in London. Now, you imagine that how much money that was costing. And the money was going out to India. The money was going into Central and Eastern Europe. So it was, I saw this then, that this is serious and organized crime. This is about criminals. Now, not trading in drugs or guns. This is criminals trading in lives. Mm. And, you know, when you deal with a crime like um, drugs and you do the stop and you do that hard stop and you open the boot and there's 10 kilos of heroin. I mean, the elation that you have, success, the job is done. There may be other things to pick up and you know someone's going to get 10 years at the minimum in prison and, you know, you're going to find the assets and the money and you go back and the file takes a little while to do and the evidence, but within a week that case is closed. If you stop a van that's got six women in the back that are non-English speaking, may speak three different languages, you know, it's a complex situation. They're not really going to trust you. It takes a lot more work. And sometimes that means that they're going too difficult trade. But one of the things that really, if I look back to my time in policing, um, you know, both of my grandparents, uh, they met in New York. They left Ireland, one from Galway, one from Limerick. And they met in New York. Uh, and they came back. They were people that came back. My father left Ireland to work in the UK. He went back as well. Obviously, we're in Ireland now. But when I look at, you know, uh, things like that, that, the Irish people had to leave. But when they left, they did have the right to a job. They did have the option for, a work, for work, which is a big difference. It's a massive difference. But also, my father told me many times of the exploitation that happened to Irish people in London and the UK. Now, he would say England was very good to him because he did well and he always had work and could work. But he said that there were a lot of people that ended up in trouble. So, you know, this is something that's been around for centuries and centuries, and we don't really see it for what it is. We don't really clearly see it for this is criminals because it's a deliberate decision by somebody to traffic someone. This is not people smuggling, which is completely different. And that deliberate decision is I'm going to make a commodity out of that person and use them. And I'm going to use them and abuse them until they're no longer any good to me. And then just picking up from, I mean, fascinating when you bring in your own your own history in terms of your extended family. Uh, 
you know, I, I'm from uh, a similar background in terms of, well, my parents actually met at the top of the Catskills uh, in New York at an Irish festival um, and had always dreamed of us having children and, and living in, at home in Ireland. Uh, they, were, they were based in Boston for, for many, many years. So we returned in the mid-90s to a small village. And it's extraordinary, though, as I'm getting older and I'm really privileged to be in the position I am now as a member of the parliament and over the years, particularly over my international roles of Trillia Year, having and being a part of different launches like the gift box, which highlighted human trafficking. And actually, I, I was asked to do that by the medical missionaries of Mary based in Drogheda, who are these radical women who are extraordinary. But how that seed got planted in terms of human trafficking and awareness, you know, I mean, this is where I, I, I go on a rant because I have so many questions for you because... Fast forward a couple of years um, or, or fast back a couple of years when I was in Calcutta in India with the Hope Foundation and I met a very mutual friend of ours called J.P. O'Sullivan who, who now works with Mechpats. And don't worry, everybody, I'll put all the information in, in the body of, of this podcast because I get, think it's important for people to continue on their research after these chats. But I knew at a time working with him, we were five hours south of what was known as uh, a very high human traffic ring now but taking into your own family story taking in a bit of mine there like there's many myths and truths out there about what it looks like what it is what it isn't who is being trafficked how they're being trafficking or trafficked we assume they're coming from different countries well, they're not. I mean, you mentioned Ireland too. We have people being trafficked through. We have people, Irish people being trafficked. I'd love for you to break down for that, um, the myths and truths, as well in tying into the the continued story of, of where you are today in terms of even being awarded the UN Women for Peace Association Advocacy Award. Because I think that's, I mean, it's incredibly important because this didn't just start and happen for you over a series of years. It This is long gone. So obviously, perhaps you I should never assume, but you obviously had your myths and truths and the stigmas and the biases challenged too. And then you continue to challenge others. And, and which is what you did for me in 2019 when I had the pleasure of meeting you after getting elected. So you might talk us through some of that too. Yeah, I think that the, the myths and the truths and, and some of it is, is led by um, cultures from, you know, through some of the political world as well. I mean, um, you know, we, we know that there's massive displacement in the world at the moment. Uh, we know that that's connected to many things, conflicts, climate change, inequality, vacuums of uh, governance. You know, we see it. I mean, there's 27 countries at the moment in conflict, as well as, you know, as we know, the Ukraine. And, you know, people then become vulnerable and you know, they move. That's the natural thing that people do. And I always go back when I when I speak about things, I talk about the Irish movement and, you know, and how many how many people died in that movement? You know, the coffin ships. Um, you know, you go by the side of the Liffey there and you've got that monument to people who left Ireland during the famine. And, you know, what happened to them? Millions died. Millions died when they arrived at their destination. And so, you know, understanding... Um, what makes people leave? What makes people move? When you're desperate, you will do many things. And I went out to Calais a number of years ago and I was asked by uh, Theresa May, the Prime Minister, to do a report that went to three secretaries of state, um, uh, 
Uh, and that report was about how the UK, with at the time the European Union, um, could work better to stop the issues of people, you know, who get to France, come into the UK and being more vulnerable. And at that time, I'm talking about 2017, 18, um, uh, I highlighted the issue that these, there was these boats starting to emerge. And what I did was said, you know, we've got to start working back with some of the other countries. And there was large sums of money on development put into Nigeria. And we worked with the Nigerian authorities and we got some prosecutions there of the traffickers. The first prosecution they got in Endo State was of a judge who was connected with it. So the myths are that, you know, that this is kind of like, um, this is just like, you know, people on the move who, you know, are taking a chance. And yes, okay, some of the people are taking a chance because what they've got is just help, help. Um, and I think, that, you know, thinking back to the 1850s in Ireland, if you were in the west of Ireland, um, you know, it's a beautiful place to live now. You can imagine why many people want to live but thousands and thousands, in fact, millions of people left Ireland because it was hell on earth. And they took a very dangerous route across the Atlantic or even to the UK. And as we know, many died on journey. Many died on arrival. But it didn't stop them all going because the desperation was so much. And we've forgotten that. You know, and the European Union has to really wake up to that. I know that there's many people coming to Europe um, but we need to start thinking about how can we help, how can we solve it further down, and how can we start to look at this, particularly in the criminal aspect, where there is a, a big problem with prosecutions. But I think the myths are um, we, we try to deal with this in a very um, superficial way sometimes, and that may go against the grain for many people. But yes, we do need posters, we need public awareness, we need all of that. But we also need the services that need to be provided in place. And it's like if, if there was a health campaign, for example, you know, um, countries dealt with COVID in what was a crisis extremely well. Um, I think Ireland did particularly well in its rollout. Yes, there was hitches in the start, but I think once it started, I never had to queue for a COVID vaccination. For me, it was so easy to do. And what happened was is that the policy was put in place, then it was put together, and then it was delivered. Well, there's no point in raising awareness about trafficking and all of that if then a victim comes forward at 3 o'clock in the morning in Kerry or in Dublin or in London or in Paris, and there is nowhere to help them, and there is no process. And then suddenly they get lost into a system, and then, you know, then it's kind of, oh, it's too difficult to deal with. Trafficking is difficult to deal with, but it's not impossible. Uh, you know, there's lots of crimes. But it does need that infrastructure built into the, to the you know, the, the statutory agencies, you know, supported and alongside the non-government organisations who do so much on this. And at the moment, it's all split up all over the place. And also, I mean, if you look, uh, and I'll talk from the Irish context, um, you know, there were 44 cases in Ireland last year of trafficking. Yet in Northern Ireland, there was 547. Uh, and the traffickers don't know that border exists. And um, in the UK in total, there was 16,900. 
And so, you know, um, and Ireland is obviously bringing in some new legislation at the moment, which I've been quite vocal on. You know, it actually says in the new legislation, a person who thinks he or she is a victim or maybe a victim of human trafficking may make an application. And then that application can be considered. And then it goes to uh, what they call an incompetent authority, and then it goes to an application board. Now, you imagine if you walked into a Garda station and said, I was assaulted last night, or I've been a victim of a crime, and they said, fill in an application, and we'll come back to you in three months and let you know. And, and in the UK, that process is taking two years on average. And the backlog is running now at about 40,000 people. Uh, and I saw this coming ahead when I was in the role of anti-slavery commissioner and raised all these red flags. And some of it as well is I'm a big supporter of the EU um, directive and the Council of Europe Convention. Uh, and I was Ireland's representative at the Council of Europe um, for uh, trafficking. And in that, though, what's happened is the legislation, the international legislation, is tried to be squeezed into all, say, for the Council of Europe, all 47 participating states. And, of course, there's things in, say, Ireland which are way ahead of other countries when it comes to dealing with victims. Like, we are a, a common law jurisdiction, and the UK is a common law, but everywhere else is the civil law processes. So we have a lot more flexibility about how we can do things, as opposed to a lot of European countries that it is very specific and the law has to say X, Y, and Z. And I think that has actually uh, bent the system out of shape. And, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time with police officers uh, from all over Europe and in the US and, uh, and, and with State Department and, and you know, many uh, Congress reps and senators from the US and governors. And when, you know, we talk about success and we say, oh, we're doing really well on this, well, you know, if you look at the fact that there was 5,577 convictions worldwide last year, worldwide, and there are estimated 49.6 million victims, that means there's almost a 99.99% of impunity. Good crime to do. Great crime to do. Well, to your point there, because I just wanted to uh, jump back a bit to the the myths and, and, and really challenge the idea that as a policymaker myself in the European Parliament, am I oblivious to what is really going on? So a couple of things, what is it, 100 to 160 billion of an industry, ginormous. Um, the belief system that, I'm reading here a few, the that the council had released, it doesn't happen in the EU. Absolute nonsense. We know it absolutely does. It starts from here, it moves from here, uh, uh, but love to hear that more. Only women are being trafficked, where in reality you see women and girls, of course, but you also see men and boys. And I'd love to really challenge the idea of something I learned recently, that when we look at even the drug cartels, which is what they are in Ireland, grooming and trafficking young boys in terms of the drug trade. I mean, would you consider that a traffic? As well as uh, it's uh, the belief system that it's all about prostitution People being trafficked within the EU, sorry, within Europe, only come from outside Europe, which which you you've you've really dispelled there. And traffickers themselves are men. So there are a couple of things that the EU Council had recently released, which 
when you start digging into it and what I learned from the gift box launch to when I went to India to our conversation in 2019 to where we are right now um, with the revision of the anti-trafficking directive, like, are, are we just falling asleep here, not listening to folks like yourself in particular? Because um, you, 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 you so eloquently said, so passionately said, traffickers has three distinct elements that I will, that you will mention. This is from a, um, a report, the victim, the role of the state and the perpetrator. Like, are we just not listening to the victim and your, and, and, and experts like yourself? I think that's exactly right. And, um, I, I, when I took over the department in, in London, and this will, this is a very practical example. I got a, an intelligence officer to scan the whole of London for its trafficking cases to see what was in the system. And, you know, they had been crying, some of them, some were crying very well. There was not really much to up. And when I went through that, I found suspects. Um, and then I got, you know, linked. And so you could say, well, the person that's been trafficking X is trafficking Y is trafficking Z. And actually, that person has also got information that they're involved in drug dealings and firearms. And I remember operations we were doing where we would arrest the traffickers. And that was the front end, you know, that they might run brothels. Uh, they may have people in forced labor. They may have, like, as one did, a telephone shop that was all forced labor, and the shop was the front for dealing the drugs right in central London. Other houses we raided, we found firearms in there. So it doesn't operate in a vacuum. Criminals are criminals, and the money they make, you say, the 150, 160 billion a year, I mean, that's an estimate from 2014 by the International Labor Organization. So we realize it's gone up significantly from then. So, so the myths around that. And, you know, yes, there's many women who are trafficked, particularly into sexual exploitation. But, and, and I dealt with terrible cases. And, you know, one of the first cases I did, when I set up the teams and they were really efficient teams, we did a, 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 an operation in East London, really nice street. And we went in and there was an 18-year-old young woman who was from Thailand, and she was hiding in the cupboard. She had been in that address for about nine months, and she had had to work every single day, no matter what her physical condition was, every day in that nine months. And she was having to um, have uh, sexual services and provide sex for at least um, five to ten men a day, maybe more on the weekends. And when we looked at that investigation, and it was a woman running the whole network, and we went back and, you know, they had three premises in East London. So they had a flow of women, mainly from uh, Southeast Asia, mainly from Thailand. So then I went to, uh, I joined, I did a joint investigation with Thailand, which I was told, oh, you won't be able to work with them. We did. We managed to get all the assets back uh, under an agreement, um, you know, through, through Interpol and other agencies. But then we found that, you know, they were using uh, passports and they were going through uh, Romania. So I worked with the Romanians. They were then going to Belgium where they would get Malaysian passports, forged ones, um, because that gave them free entry into the UK without a visa. So this all this complex network was happening in three streets. And this information had been in the system for ages. And this is serious organised crime. The money they were making. And I think if I localised it as well to say, um, you know, a case in Ireland, the case in Mullingar, where it's the first conviction and the only conviction for trafficking, 
in Ireland. I gave evidence in that trial about Nigeria because I've been to Nigeria a number of times and I was asked to explain about this witchcraft and, you know, the defence were almost poo-pooing this idea, you know, this idea of witchcraft and that could get into girls' minds or young women. They were girls, actually, some of them, because they were under 18. Um, but this can happen, you know, and, um, uh, and I was able to give that evidence and there was convictions. But these were young women who were brought from Nigeria. Some went through Italy, came in clandestine. Some had a passports that were forged. They had premises. It was at least six counties of Ireland and more than one premises. Um, they'd moved them from premise to premise. They had bank accounts set up where the women had to go down and put the money in the bank and then the criminals would go and draw it at a different bank from the cash point. They made hundreds of thousands and the guards probably thought, you know, we don't really know how long and how big this has been. It could have been much more. But it was certainly, I think, 360,000 was what uh, the figure was said in court. And then um, on sentencing, um, the judge, you know, sentenced to five years, but he said, I, this isn't really organised crime, this is a cottage industry. And I was speaking um, at an event and there were many people there and I said, that comment. And I said, if that wasn't human beings and it was drugs, they would have been getting the 10-year minimum sentence in Ireland for having over 13,000 euros worth of drugs. Um, and that would have been serious organised crime. You know, bringing drugs from Africa via Italy, via the UK, into Ireland, then distributing it all over Ireland, that would most certainly be serious organised crime. But it was a cottage industry. Is, is it legality is not, or our legal system's not clear, our policy's not clear, uh, we just don't recognise it as the crisis that it is? Or are we just ignorant to the amount of people that are involved, particularly traffickers and, of course, the victims, and I have to say survivors who come out of it. I, I, I really get so conscious of the language, particularly yeah. around victims and yeah. survivors, because they need to pick their own, Absolutely. particularly when they didn't have a choice yeah. to get in from A to B in the first place. And I think using the word victim and survivors, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, some people argue the fact that the word victim is used because it's a legal term and it's the one that's in international law and so forth. But I believe, you know, I, I, I actually say, I, I don't want anybody to even be a survivor. I want them to be a part of society. And once they've got no label um, and they're part of society and doing what they want to do, that maybe they want to work on, you know, helping in the trafficking world. Um, and I did that very early on in my, in my office, in my department. Um, there was a young woman who was a survivor. She'd come out, she was English. This is another myth. She was English. She was from a middle-class family, and she had been trafficked by an Albanian gang to Italy. And she was held at gunpoint there at times. And she escaped, and she came back to England. And anyway, uh, I got to know her, and we were helping her, and, um, and we were investigating her case. But she, um, she was well on the road to recovery. And she spoke to me one day, and she said, is there any chance I could come and work in your office? And she was a trained analyst. So we brought her in um, with support and she worked with us for six months. And then she managed to get a job through, you know, the network that we created in a hotel. She's now a regional manager out in um, um, Australia, somewhere in Australia, and, you know, in a real high-flying job. So that was her potential. It was always there. 
But the other, the other myths that you say in there that you mentioned, and as policymakers, and you know, the, the you know, I went down to Lampedusa, I went to Italy, I went to Greece, I went to the Greek islands, and I, I saw all of the things there. And you know, in a sense, we've got this raging inferno, and we're turning up with buckets of water. And you know, every time we run away to get another bucket of water. We go back and the fire's worse. And I look back to um, things like when Alan Kurdi was washed up on the beach in Turkey and the world stopped. And, you know, the president of Turkey made this, you know, he actually said that was our brother, our, you know, that's our families who are being hurt. Talking about Syrians, you know, who had been washed up, you know, four-year-old boy. And every leader in the Western world said something. You know, Ender Kenny, Jamie Cameron, the Australian Prime Minister, the New Zealand. Uh, in fact, it was when Trudeau was running for his first campaign as Prime Minister in Canada, and he withdrew his campaign for a, for a few days to, to remember Alan Kirby. So we were like that, and I've been talking about, what, 2016 or 17, whenever it was, and yet seven years on, how hard line have we been? Why are we not remembering Alan Kurdi and all those commitments that were made by international leaders? Yes, it's difficult, but we have to be able to respond to it. And the other myths are that you can't trust the police. I hear it all the time. And yes, I've worked in Belarus. I've worked in uh, some countries in Africa. I've worked in many parts of the world where you wouldn't trust the police. I also worked in anti-corruption in the Metropolitan Police, so I've seen it where, you know, my own colleagues uh, have let the side down seriously. But generally speaking, um, and I know in London at the moment and in the UK, policing have got many challenges, but generally speaking, I'd like to think that on Garshakorna, the British police and the other police forces are on the right side of justice. And we bring this and we say, we've got to treat a victim like this because this is what they're used to. And I say, no. We've got to work with the victims so they trust. And there's a fantastic NGO in West Yorkshire who deals with very large numbers of trafficked people every year, I think two or three hundred. And within the first week of the person coming into their care, they introduce them to a police officer in uniform. And they say to them, if you ever get out in trouble, if you're ever in trouble and you need help and you're walking around or you get lost, if you see someone wearing this, go up to them and they will help you and give them our number, we could, they give them a card, and they will contact us. And then they've got an agreement with police in Yorkshire that this will, that, that, that this will happen. And I think we need to break that one down, because ultimately, if you're in Phoenix Park or in Hyde Park in London or, uh, you know, Champs-Élysées in Paris or wherever it is, and there was a rapist running around and a woman got raped or sexually assaulted or a man was stabbed, and... You know, somebody went in and rescued the person and took them and they said, well, I don't really want to tell the police, I don't want to tell the authorities. And the next night the same happened. And a week later the same happened. And all this information sat over there. At what point are we going to say, actually, this support mechanism is not a support mechanism at all and it's actually allowing other people to be caught? And if the state did that under trafficking, they're actually responsible for an ECHR breach. And there's been rulings at the European courts on it or at the Strasbourg courts on this. So 
we we have to. And I, I am now no longer a police officer and I, I work extensively with NGOs, fantastic NGOs, but we have to break that image down. Because if the guards and the police and the authorities aren't getting the information, how are we ever going to put the inferno out? And every time we rescue a victim, we create a vacuum in that business model. And they need one. And for example, the Mullingar cats, the one uh, and, and other cases I dealt with, there was history of victims being rescued. So what did the traffic go out and do? Get another victim. So we have to join that up. And I also think that there is a, you know, looking at the policy, when policy is being written, I think we really need to look at the experience of the people who are feeding into that policy. Every bit of policy when I was anti-slavery commissioner or a police officer or anything else, I say, will this work at 3 a.m. in Hackney or 3 a.m. in Cornwall? And does it actually give a system? And I saw this when I was in London in the Metropolitan Police. My last shift, um, there was, it was a busy shift and, and there, there was a rape, sadly, you know, it's actually a rape. And the system kicked in, you know, there was a rape centre to take the victim to, a doctor was on call, it all happened. And I know there's a lot of criticism the way sexual offences are dealt with, but when it works properly, the system does work. I went to Cornwall and I was in the middle of Bogman and there was a rape. The system worked the same. In London, if you go into a police station and deal with trafficking, you could go to stations that are two miles apart and you would get a different response. So we haven't put it into systemic changes. And the other thing we haven't done, which is something that I'm pushing with with the G20, and something really that I think the EU should play a role in, and I've got the US kind of supporting this, I've got Australia definitely supporting it, I've got, um, we're looking at trying to get Germany more involved in it, uh, and I've got a very large G20 law firm who are leading this, um, but I go to the G20 and have done since, our, uh, since it was in Argentina in 2018. And I've managed to get into the leaders' declaration, a commitment by the G20 countries to deal with trafficking. And that's been pushing every year. And it's things like, you know, when we look at the international scale of trafficking, it fits into our supply chains at home. You know, the fact that we need a greener, uh, greener world is important. But that means more kids are going down the mines to get the coal and the coal tan. Uh, the fact that we want shiny paint and nice finishes, that means there's more mica mine, particularly in India. And all of these supply chains end up in our cities. We are using them. And we can't, I know there's consumer power. And if you look back to the history of the transatlantic slave trade, it was consumer power in Belfast that was the trigger to stop sugar coming. And there's consumers need to be uh, voicing about this, but actually it's business. They have so much profit in business that they can afford to make sure that supply chains are transparent. Germany's just brought in legislation, which means a company will get fined up to 4% if there is slavery and exploitation and forced labor in their supply chain. Um, in Ireland, as we saw only recently, Meta got fined 1.2 billion euros for GDPR breaches. Yeah, if a company has exploitation in its supply chain, nothing will happen. And what is funny is Aer Lingus have to report in the UK on their business model about slavery and human trafficking. 
they don't have to do it at night. To that point, Kevin, like so, I, I mean, I'm I'm getting frustrated hearing you as as a, at myself as a policymaker saying, I, I mean, it, to your point around London about one station two kilometers or two miles away has a very different reaction or 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 framework or support system in place in terms of supporting people who have been trafficked. I mean, the same with business, as you just shared, that we we ebb and flow based off what suits the bottom line in many ways. And I do agree, consumer have consumers have a power, but they're not the only powerful player at the table. Um, and, and I hear you on that point. Can I ask then, and just to really break it down for people being running a business who might listen to this or uh, about to join a larger business or... Um, or who are just happened to come across this and have never understood human trafficking is the business, multi-billion business that it is, I should say. Talk to me about a journey for someone being trafficked and, and where would they come from? Now, notably what you just shared, not just the war, the aggression uh, against Ukraine uh, and also the pro-democratic uh, uh, Russians too. I often feel they get left out of out of many conversations too, and you mentioned twenty-seven other countries that are experienced war. We know we know when war is ongoing, levels of trafficking go up. But talk to me, say when the world shut down for two years over COVID, what would a typical experience be for someone being trafficked in that? Yeah. So if you took some of the big multinationals, um, for example, uh, I went to Vietnam at the request of the UK government and saw all the business models and the businesses, some of them supplying into very big British companies, others um, supplied into, you know, Southeast Asia. And they had a model there which, uh, you know, you could, the government could actually do all, you know, sponsored um, migration work. But it was, you know, there was so much corruption attached to it. Um, and they did agree to, to start lowering the prices of charging for labor and things like that. But you will get people, for example, um, who will be in an area, say Vietnam, and, you know, it really does affect the most vulnerable because they're the people who may have an education, but then there's no opportunity. And, you know, sometimes, you know, we want to educate everybody, which I think is absolutely necessary, but there has to be something at the end of that education. Uh, otherwise, you become more frustrated. So a person will be given an opportunity, and this may be an advert online that could come from Europe. It could be somebody who's operating outside of Vietnam, or it could be somebody inside who says, oh, I can get your job. And the one, the people I met, some were going to China first and then going to Russia and then going to Prague. Prague was a very common route. Then once they're into the European and they're on their third or fourth country, they're running out of money, they're running out of options, um, they're three months down the line, their bills are going up, they're now having to become involved in more risky work. And then by the time they were getting to the UK, that's when they were then ending up into cannabis farms or into nail bars or organised criminality or sexual exploitation. And the journey would actually take, this isn't a few days, this journey might take six months and you and you can track it as they, and I did a report on it when it was public about how it got worse as the further they got into Europe. And then, you know, this is something that, you know, needs to be looked at. The Council of Europe Convention says that all traffic victims should be looked at if they're in a Council of Europe country, mm -hmm. when, no matter where their trafficking occurred. 
The EU directive is only about being trafficked in the EU. So, you know, so actually, can you imagine if a woman turned up and she said, oh, I've just arrived from Africa or from, you know, outside of the EU. I've arrived and I was raped yesterday. So oh, we don't deal with that. And so, you know, getting to the heart and understanding what policy is. But that person, the things that can happen to them, it can start with threats. It, it can start with a debt. The debt gets bigger. Then the power shift. So much trafficking is about the power shift. And then you're a, you're a, you're a migrant worker. You're not entitled to a bank account. Your remittances that you're sending back to your families, because you're a migrant worker, are 11, 8 to 11%. There's one of the sustainable development goals, which is the 2015, 15-year targets. One of those is to get migrant fees of remittances back down to 3%. You and I, we could get you know, an app and we can do it for nothing on these new apps and we can transfer money into different currencies instantly. But if you're a migrant worker at the lowest level of earnings and you're moving into work, even if that work is legitimate on the surface, you're still only paid in cash that gives access to somebody to exploit you. That means you've got no workers' rights. You can't get your remittances back to your country of origin unless it's very small amounts. Then you're going to have to pay 11% on it. So any credit rating that you may have got back in your country so that when you do go home after two years, you've now got enough to get a mortgage. And in Vietnam, you could get a very good mortgage if you had a credit rating. All of these things are wiped out because there's no system for these people. And when I hear, you know, we're talking about human trafficking, so we're going to do a poster campaign. We're going to raise awareness. No, let's look at the heart of it. Let's start to get really focused on, you know, this company is responsible for its transactions and 10,000 people have moved from Southeast Asia into its workplace and have been exploited. And that has generated, you know, 10 or 20 million or 100 million and one of the things that I'm campaigning for through the G20 is we bring in this notion of tainted money. So once your money is tainted with tracking, just like we do with terrorist money, you lose it. Mm -hmm. Even if it doesn't, even if it's not proceeds of crime because your due diligence wasn't good enough. Now that will wake people up. You know, that will wake companies up. Yeah. And, you know, and, and a country like Ireland, where is it connected? Well, I can give you a real example. Women were being trafficked from Indonesia to the Middle East. And these were women who were being forced into or being exploited in domestic servitude. And the money was, it was a British uh, organisation that was doing it, but the money was all being transferred through Dublin. So did Ireland want to know about investigating it? Did the UK want to know investigating it? Did the Middle East? Did Indonesia want to investigate it? If I said that was terrorism, everyone would be fighting. If you'd said it's firearms, everyone would be fighting to take responsibility. But this is trafficking. It's about vulnerable people, but my responsibility. And that is what's happening, even at EU level. And when I was down in Italy, it's probably one of the, you know, when you have these wake-up calls, there was an um, Eritrean a number of Eritreans have come in, and one, she's 15, and she spoke to me through an interpreter, and she, there was something special about her. She was just a nice person. Anyway, the 
person who was there said, she'd like to tell you her story. Would you listen? I said, of course. And she spoke some little bits of English, but through the interpreter, she told me she had been in Libya and she'd been kept in what's called a collection house. And those collection houses, they're where they take people to and then kept there for a number of months or weeks or whatever it is. And they, they have actual auctions there. So old-fashioned slave trade, auctions. And they will keep records on women. And, you know, you can buy them for sex, you can buy them for false labour, you can buy them and then you return them in the evening or whatever. This girl had been in there and she'd been raped time after time after time. Then she'd, she'd accumulated enough money for them that they found a, a seat on the boat for her. She then went on this dangerous voyage across the uh, Mediterranean and they did that where they got halfway and, you know, uh, got into some sort of bother and they were rescued by the Italians at the time um, who were doing a very, uh, you know, kind of progressive approach and she was brought in and she was now in this centre living in an accommodation with other men um, across the building, other adults in the, in the same accommodation she was. And I was being told by everybody I was being told by Interpol, Europol, the EU, British government, Italian, what a wonderful job we were doing. She didn't think we were doing a wonderful job. And all the people liked her. Now, she was grateful that she wasn't being exploited anymore. She was grateful that she could go to sleep at night and get food. But she didn't know if she was, not, if she was going to be raped again because she wasn't put into this. She's a child. And when we say we're doing all these things, let's be honest about it. Let's be really honest about it and look at it from their eyes. And when they say something, let's look at it critically. You know, there's too much. I saw it in policing, running to our defence, running to the defence of the police. Actually, I used to like it when somebody told me, you know, you could do that better as an organisation. And so... You know, and I've also seen men who have been trafficked. And, and this is a, a man, he came from Romania, and he, he had a, a slight drink problem um, in a way, but it got worse when he got to the UK because he was, he was picked up by a family and they were using him and a number of other men. They lived in Woodgrain in London, a nice place, and these people used to be sent out to do thefts all day. And, of course, he was getting arrested all the time or occasionally for shoplifting. But anyway, he got to the point where he was living in the shed, in the garden, and he got to the point where he was thinking about taking his own life. And he got to that point, and the reason he got to that was he complained on New Year's Eve that he was out in the shed, um, no light, no heating, and he had um, asked if he could come in for something to eat, and they said no. And so he... He ran away and he went to a police station and thankfully the police officer who was on duty um, rang the Romanian embassy. The Romanian embassy then rang me and we put in a plan to get the man rescued and he then took two or three days to tell us exactly what was going on. We managed to put him in a very good accommodation. Anyway, he told us there were children in the house as well. So within two hours of us getting that information, we entered the premises and there was children, but there was one, she was um, seven years old. She'd been there for four years. She was a hustler. She had rotten teeth. She was a mess. 
Her clothes, well, the, the only clothes she had was what she had on. She didn't go to school. And neighbours had seen her putting the rubbish out. Neighbours had seen her, you know, in the garden, a seven-year-old. And they also saw that all the other kids went to school, but she didn't. And the other kids were their own kids, and she wasn't. They claimed that she was their daughter, and we had to do a whole process. And it was very unusual. I had to get special warrants in Romania to get DNA from the family uh, or the alleged family there. And we managed to prove that, you know, she was nothing to do with that family, and then we did find out which family she was. Now, she was put into safe accommodation with a wonderful family. She is thriving now um, and doing well. But, you know, and we got the, the woman who organised that and her gang, they got 14 years imprisonment, but that gang was all run by a woman. Like it's, it's as, as you're sharing there, like it's incredibly, there's so many layers of complexity, so many vulnerabilities, so many times, I mean, that you, you, you would see something and then just say, well, that doesn't seem right, but you know what, that's behind a door or the police will pick it up if it is a problem or to, you know, to your earlier share around Mullingar, like no doubt people had seen things or, or, or heard things. And, and actually, I mean, I remember being in, in Kolkata in 20, what was it? 2014. And Kevin, my heart was broken because we did it. We did a late night, uh, ambulance run. It must've been like one, two o'clock in the morning. And it was, it, the premise was to ensure anybody on the street young, where we would uh, encourage them into a safer accommodation for the night. I think we started around midnight and by the time we had done various parts of the city. Now, at one point, and I think I, I shared this with you when we met first, at one point, we were a couple of doors down from a very noisy, loud bar. Men were falling out of it. And there was a mother who was working the street and she had six children. And through translation, it was shared. And I I. I I often pray that this wasn't the truth and that I misinterpreted, but I, I didn't. But if any man had come out and didn't want her, the pick was any one of her children because it was safer that they were a unit versus not. A half an hour later, I had we had met another young girl. She must have been, I mean, seven, eight years of age. And the look on her face, her eye, I've, I, I'll never forget her eyes. She she was carrying the world of someone who had far too much experience than what a young girl should have had ever had, and and after uh, and after meeting those and and we met many others, you know, as a smaller group, we we were discussing and you know we we're we we're having these similar conversations like this, being like, what is better that a person moves through a, an illegal or illegal pathway to a better world, similar to. As you rightly pointed out, the Irish who fled, particularly the West of Irish, people who fled uh, in the famine and many years after that to a better place, um, taking the risks because the current status of what they were living was not living. And, and, and you're left in this conundrum of how the hell did we get here? In 2023, how are we at this point where human trafficking is a $150, billion industry? There's thousands of women, children and men being trafficked right in front of us and we don't have a common approach. And and I mean, this leads me to my next question. What do listeners, what do I as a policy, like what do we need to do to eradicate it? And I, I want to say what from an Irish standpoint, but it's not because 
we rely often on the United Kingdom in terms of trafficking information, in terms of their systems, and it has to be dealt with internationally. It has to be. Otherwise, one part of the world gets richer through through trafficking and the other part pretends it's not happening. And I, I'd love to ha- have your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, um, I think the joined up approach is essential. Uh, you know, And as we know, if, if things don't work at the end of the line, um, that's where it's needed. So we need to think about the end of the line. What can be done in communities? And there's things like, you know, I've, I've been doing some training um, with the, you know, uh, different faith groups, starting with the Catholic Church, the Church of England, uh, Muslim communities, and uh, all, all people and not, not just people of faith. But, and that is all um, looking at, you know, having a multiple options in your community. And it may be, you know, as a community, you could be a church community. And you may say, well, in our community, there are a number of high-risk premises, like car washes or nail bars. You know, the car wash industry, the illegal car washes in the UK, and this is becoming a big problem in Ireland as well, there's so many things that are wrong with them. <laughs> Health and safety, fire risks, the green agenda, because they don't have recycling of the water, and that's all going into the water table. But the people being home, and in the UK, it's 6,000 of them, and it's attracting 1.5 billion a year, and that's criminal asset. And nothing is done about it. And you don't need to deal with it as a, every case is a trafficking. There's loads of other regulations in order to address it. And I had meetings with police yesterday and, and, and the, the industry around car washes to try and come up with a policy to approach that, to reduce the risks. So understanding how you approach it um, and, you know, empowering communities to know about this. And who, what do I tell them to do in their communities? Well, I said, you know, your police chief is somebody who works for you. Your politicians work for you. Your council leaders work for you. Start communicating with them and telling them you're not happy with this. And, you know, and they have to respond to this. This is vulnerability. It's organised crime. It's actually destabilising the community because if that's there, it's got other legs. So understanding how this is a risk in your society but I think for policymakers, there is a there needs to be a, a gear change. And when I say that, mm. I spoke about human trafficking at the UN Security Council uh, alongside the Secretary General, and we put forward a resolution that Spain or Spain put forward a resolution. It was agreed, and it was talking about the fact that human trafficking is funding terrorism on last year, like the things I told you about there in Libya, but also in Iraq and also in Afghanistan and other parts of the world. And that's how serious this is. That's how serious this is. It, it, it has an impact on terrorism. And it also means that businesses have gone rogue. And businesses that we think are running really well, um, how much are they actually doing to make sure there's all these commitments and all this kind of you know, rhetoric, but who is actually investing in it financially? Who is actually investing in it with people? And one of the things I've looked at recently is the fact that actually globally it's very hard to try and track a billion US dollars collectively from the whole world invested to fight this. Now, if you're investing a billion against 150 billion organised crime, it's obvious who's going to win. So... To up the game, 
I want to see the G20, and I'm running this campaign now about 30 by 30. By 2030, when the SDGs end, I want to see G20 countries invest in at least 30 billion in fighting this crime. But what that will do, you see, is when we do it smart and clever, the remittances should go down to the 3% maximum. In fact, I'd like to see them to be nothing. So you're actually generating more money for the, for the people who are migrant workers. You know, I've been working with the banks and trying to get the banks to say, actually, migrant workers will bring in a special bank account for them so that they can transfer the money home and the trafficker can't get the money because it should be paid electronically by the big companies. So they have the same rights as us. And so these policy decisions that can be made at the level of the EU, at the level of governments, at the level of the US, we need to get it into that ballpark. Yes, we need to listen to the victims, absolutely. And we need to understand and we need to give them, you know, the right of voice. And some of them are running organisations and it's absolutely crucial that that's happening. But in the UK, for example, there's about 40,000 victims waiting for a decision. Nobody's listening to them now. Nobody's reading all their accounts and putting it into an intelligence package. So let's not just do it and say, oh, when we find one victim afterwards, um, that we'll work with them and then we'll say that's the effectiveness. You know, We need to invest and we need it to be invested right. The US invests on the criminal justice side $50 billion a year on the fight against drugs. It invests 0.5% of that on the fight against trafficking. So we need to up it. And then that will do. That should be funding, you know, policing. It should be funding uh, victim support. And I'm not saying it should go into a central pot. No way should it go into a central pot. It should be countries report. We are spending this on this, this and this. We're working with that country. The other thing, Maria, is go back and look at the, you know, we've got the 1926 um Forced Labour Convention, the 1930 ILO Convention against Forced Labour, the 1957 one, we've got the 2014 protocol, the UN, um, or the Universal Declarations of Human Rights, the European Convention on Human Rights, the EU Directive, the Council of Europe Convention, and the list goes on if you go outside of the European perspective. All saying, all saying we're going to end this in the shortest possible time. That goes back to 1930. And I don't know how many people know that the person who wrote the 1930 uh, convention and pushed for it and the establishment of the ILO um, was actually an Irish person from Waterford, Edward Phelan. So um, that's why Ireland has always been such a promoter of the ILO. But Ireland isn't actually implementing all of the measures that were written by Edward Phelan. <laughs> you know, and that's the truth. You know, We have to be able to say that. But there is one last thing I would like to put out there is let's not give up hope. And whilst everything I've said is about, you know, we need to do better, uh, we absolutely do. But I was in India not that long ago, a couple of months ago, and I went to, you know, a rural part where I met lots of projects. And there was one fantastic project um, run by religious sisters and they had 150 young women in there who they were teaching to be care workers. And they used the term dropouts because they had left school. I know it's a term we wouldn't use, but that was, that's the official term in India. But um, the education, the training, the feeling in there was absolutely fantastic. So I said to them, I was having uh, a lunch with them. I said, who, 
do you mind me asking you who, who fund you? And they said, yeah, the Irish. And it was, um, yeah, and they said, oh, yeah, we get money from uh, Mission Cara. And I just thought that shows what can be done. Nobody knows about that. I think we need to do more about things like international aid. Um, you know, did anybody know that the Irish Defence Forces were training other defence forces in alert awareness of human trafficking in the current, including the Americans came over for some of that training? I'm not sure if it's still going on. And we need to be talking about the strategy, the, the, the things that are being done um, by governments, uh, by the public, because the money that goes from the government from Irish aid is public money. And then I think, so we don't give up hope. We should never give up hope. We realise there's lots of good things going on in our very um, difficult world. But apart from the um, 30 by 30, one thing that I think the public uh, can start to ask for and ask for from MPs, TDs, government leaders, we all pay taxes or most of us pay taxes and we give that money to the government to spend on our behalf. And there's things that not everybody agrees the government should spend money on, like, you know, from a British perspective, people would say, well, a military power isn't necessary and we don't agree with nuclear war on, on nuclear weapons. And that's an argument that's put forward. But democratically, it's agreed and it's elected on by the manifesto that the public are supporting a military power or a military force and nuclear weapons. And the same in Ireland's got a defence force, isn't it? But one thing no government has been authorised to spend by any member of the public is in its procurement money ending up in the hands of traffickers. And when you think one fifth of the money in the world is spent by governments, so they need to get their house in order. Governments need to make sure that, yes, yes it will take time, it needs a plan, it needs a strategy. But if a big company is doing some procurement with a government or the government's doing big procurement with businesses overseas, how much checking is done to make sure that actually that money isn't going straight into the hands of traffickers? Because if it was going into the hands of terrorists, there would be an impact. Yes, we need the, we need the grassroots work. We need the victim support. Absolutely. Um, but we need someone to start turning the tap off. And, and that's where policymakers need to start, I think, moving themselves a bit more. Uh, one question I did want to ask, and, and then I promise no more questions for me, was with your experience based off what you know, and it's I think it's important to that people understand the severity of where we're at, how many people do you believe are being trafficked around the world? The today? number, and it was only produced recently by Walk Free Foundation, and it's accepted by the uh, UN, is 49.6 million. And that number, I think, I think that it reflects it. I think 150, 160 billion revenue is way under what it really is now. Um, so I think that, um, I think that, yeah, I mean, the scale of this and the complicit nature of it, you know, in, in business. And there are businesses that are trying to do this. You know, they want to create this field, this level playing field where, you know, the, the other business down the road isn't working with rogue you know, uh, rogue traders or rogue employers and people who are exploiting people and trafficking. Um, and, you know, you've got to look at things like, you know, there was uh, actions taken, like on Goodyear tyres, 
were fined a mass, massive amount of money in an action recently um, because of the tyres, you know, in the rubber and all that that they're, they're getting from, from Africa and the exploitation of workers. Uh, so these actions are happening. And I don't know if you know that, you know, the US has what's called um, uh, the Tariff Act, which is back to 1930. And part of that is what's called a, a Customs and Border Protection Order. The US has got 52 of them running at the moment. And, for example, during COVID, gloves still coming from Malaysia for PPE um, were uh, made by child labour. America put a banning order on it. The UK and, and, and some other countries were still buying. Canada banned it, even though they didn't have a policy, because they said, we can't be funding, we can't do this under our law. Um, and, you know, there was, uh, there was um, you know, some risks some of these could start moving into European countries, these CBP orders. So, you know, trade is done overnight with the US on a particular product or a particular region. So, you know, we need to be aware of these, these measures are there. The impact they would have if they came down on a big company yeah. would be significant. Well, what I've seen is that when an order is put, and I was asked to go out to um, Central Asia to a, one of the countries there to do an assessment, after a CBP order was placed on, um, within six months, that country sorted the problem out. To, to, to that point, Kevin, just to understand too, given your experience similar, a little bit closer to home, you know, from an, I'm going to, I'm going to lump Ireland yeah. and the United Kingdom together just to understand, because we have to be realistic. We have, the United Kingdom is a third country. As an island, we we have Northern Ireland included in terms of republic. So we we in some cases, particularly like this, perhaps we have to look at it as a unit. How many people do you believe are being trafficked? Well, the, uh, the figure Ireland? that again from that 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 report that comes from the Walk Free Foundation and um, um, which I would say is endorsed um, estimates that you know Ireland. Uh, we've been talking about somewhere in the region. I think they put at four thousand a year, um, a or year. at any one time. And if you think about it, forty-four were were identified last year. You know, uh, it's a great problem to be in. It's a great problem. The math, the math simply don't add up, Kevin. They just simply don't add up. I'm so grateful to you uh, for your time and your expertise. But to those listening. Um, this is just, you know, a conversation with a formidable force when we come to looking at the issue of of people being human trafficked. And it's so complex. It's not just sexual exploitation. It's not just coming from one country. It's labor violations. It's child slavery. It's the movement of people in various forms in very disruptive ways. We talk about victims and survivors. I mean, I could even talk about the mental health of individuals um, before we even start looking at the the billions that are 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 taken in, as well as what other companies and larger countries are making from, I don't want to use the words ignoring, but certainly working within the fringes of where this is at. But Kevin, I just want to say thank you very much. Any final thoughts to leave with people and on on yeah. on um, just one thing? I suppose a good point to close on is. Uh, People will say, Who, who's your hero? Who's really inspired you on this is a question. And there's many people that I could talk about, you know, particularly um, victims and survivors that really inspired me. Like the young lady I met or the girl I met in, uh, in, um, in Italy. But I was out in Nigeria and I was taken to this very rural part of Nigeria 
and it was where there is a problem in trafficking and trafficking in Africa itself, but trafficking into Europe uh, and uh, in Edo State. And I was taken to a leper colony where, you know, um, leprosy has now been cured, um, but the older generation uh, are, are still suffering from it and they've got deformities and so forth. And I was taken around this village and they had their own little shop. And this woman came to the door and she, she had a deformed leg. She had a um, deformed hand, but she invited, she said, you know, in very sort of broken English or hard to understand English, she invited me in. So I went into a small, you know, little house. Uh, it was only one room really with a second room at the back. And she said, do you want a drink? And she made me some, a cup of tea. And she said, God bless you for coming here. She said, I'll pray for you. And I said, thank you. And then she said, um, uh, you know, you come from uh, the UK, you come from a wealthy country. And I said, yes. And she said, you know, you came here years ago and you brought your medicine and we're now cured. And she pointed out to the door where there were kids playing with an old rag as a football in this bumpy field playing football. And she, um, she said, they're cured. And I said, yes. She said, I thank you so much for that. And then she looked at me and she just went, but now you're back and you're taking our children and they're ending up being your slaves and working in your sex industry and working in all the places where you don't want to work. And I said, you're right, and I'm sorry. And she said, can you do one thing for me? And I said, yes. She said, can you go back and tell everybody to stop it? And that was her policy. Now, I would love to go back to her before the SDGs finish in 2030 and say to her, you know, we're starting to make traction on this. I'd love to go to her this year and say, do you know what, we're really making a difference. But if I went back to her now and saw her, I'd have to hold my head in shame. And when I feel that I can go back to her and stand with my shoulders tall and say, we've made a difference, that's when I know we have made a difference. So she's my taskmaster. I often think about her, I think about where she is now, and I'm here in my, compared to her, land of luxury. And that is who we are working for. And that is proper service. That's what the EU was designed for, to make a better world, not just for the member countries, but for the world. And I think we need to think about that when we're writing policy needs. I was left with two questions from this conversation. How do we collectively end this lucrative business? And who is holding the perpetrators to account? It is unjust and terrifying to know that globally in 2023, traffickers make each year an estimated profit of 29.4 billion euros. As Kevin shared, it is believed 3,000 to 4,000 people could be trafficked in Ireland, with one in four victims being children. Women and girls represent 63% of the world's total for sexual exploitation, for labour and for forced criminality, forced marriages, even removal of organs. First, let me encourage you to watch some documentaries. Born into brothels, Calcutta's Red Light Kids, Sex Trafficking in America and The Dark Side of Chocolate are phenomenal. I also encourage you to research MacPats, a non-profit organisation focused specifically on the issue of child trafficking in Ireland. MECPAT advocates for children safeguarding from trafficking through collaborative work 
raising awareness and through education. And Anne and JP there facilitate workshops with frontline and emerging professionals across many disciplines, some including social work, healthcare, education and hospitality. In the European Parliament, I'm currently working with other MEPs on the revision of the EU Anti-Trafficking Directive, as well as working to unblock the horizontal directive held up in Council since 2018. In the European Parliament, I'm currently working with other MEPs on the revision of the EU Anti-Trafficking Directive, as well as working to unblock the horizontal directive held up in Council since 2008. Both of these legislative files ensure EU member states are accountable for and must protect the thousands of victims and survivors who have been and are currently being trafficked around our world. While the EU has allocated 13 million in funding to protect and support victims, there's a number of areas that we can still work on, like increased international cooperation, the exchange of information with non-EU countries to ultimately break the business model of traffickers, both online and offline. We have so much more work to do. I want to thank you for joining us. Please keep in touch if you have any questions. We need to work together to finally end this.